I, I, we'll see. Uh, the truth is I'm teaching less. I have less time in public teaching these days by my own decision. It's time for other people to take it up, and uh, that's just what happens. It's a stage of life. But I also think, and this is sometimes I say it's a tease, but sometimes I really am so quite serious about it that I'm going to pretty well have to stop teaching pretty soon because what I have to say gets shorter and shorter. I say it in about two sentences. This is a complicated thing, this life. It takes a lot out of you. And the best thing we can do is learn how to console ourselves and other people. It's the only possible, not even antidote, because it's not a complete antidote, but it's the only possible humane response to the human condition. So there I finished in 50 seconds or something. <laughs> That's a whole Dharma talk. And I think that all that I ever say is an iteration of that. And 20 years ago, 25, whenever I started with teaching, I could make a whole talk about the factors of enlightenment or the this or that. But the thing is, that's about it. That's, that's the whole thing. You could have the, it's the um, Evelyn Wood <laughs> version. But it's, it's, it's all you have to know about. A friend of mine, um, no longer in this, in this world, who died actually too young, uh, wrote a book called uh, This is Real and You Are Absolutely Unprepared about the life situation. And however prepared we are, that doesn't make it better for us when the people that we care about are in trouble. And however much we know that this happens to everybody and everything is temporal. I was reading this morning again the story of, um, of the Buddha's passing out of this life. And um, uh, well, we could start with that. I'll tell you the overview of what we think we're going to, I think, we're going to do in, in the rest of this summer. I'll be here a fair amount over the next several months, a little bit, I think, three weeks now and then gone two, but then something like seven weeks in a row, a long time. Uh, and uh, I thought, you know, I'll go back to the beginning and I'll do the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It's the same Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and, but uh, you start with that and everything fits into it because, uh, because I think it's the synopsis of it all. It's the Dharma without, without dogma. It's the Dharma without stories. It's the Dharma without metaphysics, which are all interesting and, and fine to teach and think about. But I think when it comes down to it, what we could actually all understand transparochially, because it's not a Buddhist wisdom, it's wisdom wisdom, is that it's a challenging thing, this life. It's very hard. Um, I keep, I keep remembering what people keep reminding me of whoever it was who said old age is not for sissies. But the whole thing is, the whole thing is not for sissies from starting, from the beginning. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to keep on going on. So I thought that I really would at least give myself a form so I wasn't just rambling away. And I thought, well, I'll start with uh, the Eightfold Path, and I, I'll start with wise understanding today about what's wise understanding. It's a, either the culmination of or the beginning of the Eightfold Path, depending on how you want to read it. Then I thought, well, that'll be good, because then you have to, if you're going to say the Eightfold Path, you have to say, which is the fourth noble truth, you have to start by saying the first three noble truths, so at least it's legitimately put into the Buddhist context. 
And that's really what I want to talk about. I think, I hope, that over the next however many weeks, we can highlight each part of the path, but really all the time keeping the whole Four Noble Truths as the rubric within which we're thinking about it. And then this morning it came to me as I was thinking about where I wanted to start. I, I, as I said, I was reading about the Buddha's um, passing out of this life. And I was reading about it in a book which I, I actually got um, just recently in this bookstore. It's called Rude Awakenings, which is an interesting, you know, a lot of times you think about waking up. and It is about waking up and it is about a spiritual pilgrimage. And uh, it's written by two people. It's written by contemporary people, uh, younger than I. I think they probably were 45 when they wrote this book and maybe 55 now, just judging from dates. And uh, Ajahn Suchito is uh, one of them. And Ajahn Suchito is a monk in the Theravada tradition. And Nick, uh, Nick Scott, uh, on this pilgrimage that they make together, to the holy places of India where the Buddha was born, uh, where he presumably sat under the Bodhi tree and had his enlightenment experience, where he died. They decide to make a pilgrimage on foot and uh, uh, they, uh, and they, they write, keep a journal about it. And this is their joint journal. So you'll read a while and it's Ajahn Suchito talking and then you'll read a while and it's Nick's journal on that same piece of territory that they've covered, that same experience that they had. And I've been enjoying it uh, tremendously. First of all, I, I think it's extremely well written. It's a pleasure to read. And it's and really in a contemporary idiom. And I'm moved by the ardor and the fervor of these two young men because uh, Nick, is, uh, Nick goes along, first of all, he's Ajahn Suchito's friend. And also because Ajans can't travel on their own, they because they can't, they can't, they can't carry money. They can't buy things. So if you're going to travel, you have to sometimes uh, have tickets to get on a, a boat to go from A to B or someplace where you can't walk. Uh, so you have to have an attendant with you, and. Uh, Nick goes along because he's a friend of his and he wants to be the attendant. And he decides to take on the practice level of uh, Ajahn Suchito just to keep him company and for his own, uh, just as a discipline for himself. So at one point he says, so we compromised. Instead of getting up at 3 in the morning every day to start the pujas, we get up at 3.30 every day. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> Uh, is, and it's very sweet. And so I just wanted to read you two little parts. I really wanted to inspire you to think about reading the book because it's, um, I was thinking about, it's not a novel, but it's really lovely. I'm finding it delightful. Uh, and the first thing I wanted to read to you was Nick, no, Ajahn Suchito, talking about uh, this is a good place to begin, anyway. Talking about, at, at some po point early on, telling his life story um, and how he came to be a monk. So, it, it, and so with all this background, says, so incredibly enough, I became a Buddhist monk. I ended up sitting in a little hut in that monastery where I was visiting for three years, on my own for most of the day with nothing much else to do, 
except channel the mind's outgoing energies inward. It was a struggle. Strangely enough, the pain and the frustration, as well as the physical and emotional collapse from being in India, helped keep me there. To leave would have required conviction that things would be better somewhere else. At that time in my life, conviction narrowed to one insight. Any suffering is mind-wrought, and the way to the end of it has to come through getting to its roots. I think that's a brilliant statement. Every suffering is mind-wrought. Instead of figuring out different places to go, I realized that I had to come to terms with restlessness. Instead of muttering about the lack of interesting things to do and the stifling heat and the poor food and the hideous mind states, I realized that the crux of the matter, although hard to come to terms with, was my own aversion. Sometimes I would recognize that I was holding out against things and then I would relax, let go. That left the way it is, the pilgrim's way. I thought that's brilliant, really, that uh, what I said in the instruction uh, earlier this morning, it seems to me more and more that it's not about what's happening outside or inside. It's about developing a mind, cultivating a mind that's, that doesn't, uh, that's not having a problem with it. This is it. This is the way it is. Cultivating that kind of mind that doesn't have a problem. Someone gave me a, a, a painted plate. I can't remember where they got it recently, but for a gift, and it's lovely. And it, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it has a, one of those mottos on it, and it says, attitude is everything. Choose a good one. <laughs> and, I, you know, you think to yourself, that's the kind of stuff you get in Chinese fortune cookies. But it's actually true that attitude is everything. And, but the, I think the bigger news in that particular plate is the idea that you could choose it. That's the big news, that, that it is possible that there's so little that we're in control of. I really want to talk about that next. I want to read you two more quotes. I don't know if we're in control of anything. I'm in control maybe of what I eat for lunch if I live so long. But, <laughs> that, uh, but, uh, but maybe I am in control of, if I cultivate it, with what kind of a mind I meet my experience. So later on, half a book later, lots of it is wonderful, but I come to another line that I wanted to, uh, to read to you. Here it is. Here, here, here. They have such difficulty. I mean, really, the difficulties of just walking across India. It's hot, it's dusty, and the monk rules, which now not only Ajahn Suchito is keeping the monk's rules, but Nick Scott is keeping them as well, require that you do not eat after the sun has passed its zenith in the sky. So you can get up very early and have what amounts to a breakfast, and you can have the meal for the day uh, before high noon, and then you don't eat until the next day. For the rest of your life, when you take vows. It's, it's not like you get a Sabbath day off, or a new moon day off for the rest of your life. You wear that outfit, and you don't eat afternoon, and you don't own things, except the one robe that you have on and another extra robe, and your sandals and your alms bowl, and you don't handle money, and you depend on the generosity of others for your meals. And if you can't find anybody to put food in your alms bowl by noon, then you don't eat till the next day. So 
there's a lot of uh, stress in this, in this um, more in Nick's um, renditions than you have the feeling that Ajahn Suchita more rolls with it, but they're keeping the rules with a lot of attention to uh, where the sun is and are they going to get a meal. Uh, I, I was once on a, in a, in a um, I was traveling with a group of Buddhist teachers that, uh, that included several people in robes uh, and all of us were watching the, what time it was because, it was, I mean, we could have eaten after lunch but we wouldn't, didn't want the three or four people within our community to get to lunchtime without having eaten. So everybody was carrying power bars with them that we could give to the monks, just, you know, if it got near the lunchtime and they weren't eating. Uh, at one point, uh, they, they meet somebody, uh, they, they, meet, uh, they meet somebody uh, who's a, uh, a monk, and they visit him, and they're talking about Dharma, and he says the conversation really picked up everybody's mood. And he said the, the topic lasted um, the topic lasted as most of the morning. It was a delight when we could talk like that. Ajahn Suchito could be such a mine of information. So this is Nick talking. We were still discussing the Venerable Ananda with whom we'd spent time. As we walked on after the meal, but the heat of the afternoon and the trunk road soon put an end to that. Instead, we went back to trudging along with our heads down in our own worlds. My world soon a fog of fatigue and negativity as I trailed some way behind him. The brief feeling of companionship had evaporated. <laughs> I found, though, that however fed up I got with everything, I could never get angry with my companion because of the basic respect I had for him. We were both in this together, come what may. And I'm thinking about that, that particular line. I could never be angry with him because of the basic respect I have for him. The line that I've been having in my mind all week as I was taking together different bits and pieces of things I wanted to talk to you about was a line that comes from Tibetan practice where they say all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. If your mind is spacious enough, things come up, but they don't. They're, they're not a problem. They don't. They don't have hooks to hang each other, hang themselves on. You know what I imagine always when I when I first heard that, all uh, hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. So of course it's completely incorrect to anthropomorphize or to make it with a head or that the night is here or that the mind is in your brain or whatever. But letting that all aside. I imagine that my head, instead of being here holding all these thoughts, is enormously big and open on top and wide, like a sort of a crater of a moon, and so wide that if a, a negative thought arises, it just poof is out of it. It floats out. Nothing holds it in. That in the great space of awareness, or if if uh, if I was living in a cloakroom and there were. Um, hooks on the wall that I could hang this story on or that story on or this story on and all, the, all those stories would be hanging on the hooks of my mind. My mind was so big that there would be no hooks that I could hang my stories on and they would just bubble out of here. All the stories, including this is awful, I shouldn't have done this, it's a terrible mistake, 
Why are we here? <laughs> so here is Ajahn Suchito, just after they finished that walk. He said, uh, it, was so, it was strange spending so much time today with Nick, but hardly having a conversation. To my mind, his bouncing, spontaneous style seemed insensitive. Or maybe not being able to do th things my way was the problem. Well, that my, well, that was my friend. Loyal, generous, exasperating Nick. I could feel myself getting moody towards the end of each day, while with the blisters, the heat, the fatigue, the grime, and the jangle of India, I realized that I was probably irritating him in return. We were probably helping each other through all kinds of attachments, if we could only realize it. You put it in a better context. You reframe. I'm going to tell you a completely silly story about reframing, but since I'm opening to where I want to be, I'll tell you the silly story about reframing. I was... Um, I want to tell you that story first. Well, I, I did half of it, so I will. But I'll tell it, I'll tell it a little bit fast. You notice I'm more on and off with the glasses today than I've ever been. That's because I had my second cataract operation. My eyes are great. I have Hawkeye vision. I can read the, I can read the posters in the back of the room. I can read anything that's more than, that's computer length or further away. And I have a little bit of astigmatism close up, which I'm happy. To, to trade for everything I had before, but I need these uh, CVS readers to read small print. And I haven't gotten used to perching them on my nose. They feel funny, so they're on and off. But even, so now that I've mentioned it, I, th I was telling the two people I was riding with this morning to come here, that that very thing that I just said, like it's normal, I now have two lenses, two interocular lenses, one of this one and that eye, uh, that are particularly calibrated to see far and to see computer length and to see clearly. And the glare that I used to have with, from headlights from the cataract is gone because the cataracts are gone. And think to yourself, 50 years ago, people didn't do that. People just had trouble seeing. And it, it, imagine put, taking out the lens and putting in a lens into somebody's eye. That's amazing. My friend Susan signs all her emails, stay amazed. What I'm going to end up today and probably every other time that I teach, saying that you have no idea how many times I'm all over the place saying my friend Susan says stay amazed. Because I think it's the antidote to sinking into dismay and despair and unhappiness with the world. It's true, the world is dismaying the cause of potential despair, it's certainly a lot of sadness, and life is amazing. Sometimes not our lives, sometimes our lives are grief-stricken, but the whole, that it's happening, not what is happening, but that it's happening. And if I can keep those, somehow it opens the mind. One of the things I think about in terms of why are we, why are we sitting here, if someone says to me, you know, why are we sitting, and maybe I think, or I've been sitting for 14 years and I think, well, towards what end? There really is an end, towards the end of really seeing that this is true, it's endlessly challenging, and this is true, it's endlessly amazing. And how to keep them both there? Because I think that the, this one 
keeps the context that both of them saying this other person can be a really an annoying pain. But I have such respect for them. I love them so much. We're probably doing each other a lot of good by causing each other to really face what are the hindrance energies, habit hindrance energies of our mind. The mind has a habit of grumbling. You know, it just does. If you think about it, how much airtime we waste and so much traffic. I actually, I was telling somebody the other day that I tried to, I tried to listen to the grumbling when it's happening so that I could at least sometimes be funny with myself about it. If I hear my mind say something like, uh, uh, this freeway is too crowded. I, and I, I hear that thought go through my mind. And then I say, too crowded for what? I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's too crowded for a dinner party, but it's not too crowded to drive on. Everybody's driving. They watch it. And what I do is I catch my mind in the process of habitually annoying itself with bad stories. I mean, there's no reason to tell yourself bad stories. You have to see the story and then... and. and not get beguiled by it. All right, this is a small story I was going to tell you, then I'll tell you what else is here. I was riding my bike sometime in the last week up in Sonoma County on a heavily trafficked road because I ride, you know, they don't have bike paths, you ride on roads, but I know the roads well. I was riding by myself and I was riding uh, uphill and on a curve but in the bike lanes, I'm riding along, and my chain jams and jumps off the, off the, uh, uh, off the sprockets of the gears. So it all of a sudden jams, so you leap off, so you catch yourself, you get a big adrenaline shot, you leap off, and say, okay, I'm all right. And I'm on the side of the road, and cars are whizzing by. And I say, well, it's all right, I know how to put that chain back on. I'll just get the tool out of my little bag on the back of the seat. Then I see, haha, I forgot to put the bag back on the back of the seat. So I don't have the tool. So then I think, oh, that's all right. I can do it with my finger. I know how to do that. So I'm pulling at it and pushing and crouching on the side of the road. Cars are going by. And, I, and I'm doing it. And I, I start to hear my mind saying, oh, and then I think to myself, well, if I really get stuck, if I can't get this large this chain, I could at least call somebody to come and get me. Then I realize that my telephone is in the same bag with the tool that's not on my bike. So now I'm, on, I'm in that situation. So then I'm pulling on the chain, and, I'm, and my, the, my, my mind starts to make a string of thoughts. What an idiot you are for getting the thing at home. That was really foolish. Now, you can't even cross the street. The traffic is so bad. How are you going to get out of here? And you shouldn't have come out. You shouldn't be doing this by yourself. You should always ride with somebody. And this is a ridiculous thing. If you're going to ride in the road, ride with somebody. But take your telephone with you. Where's the tool? What's the matter with you? And, uh, you know, you're just showing off. The tel- you want to tell everybody that you ride. But, you know, you shouldn't be riding. You're too old. Don't ride. Anyway, but, and then all of a sudden, I unjam the chain. And I thread it back on the chain. And I know how to do it. And I know how to pick up the bike and fix it up so it's on both chains and it's going. I think, well, I'm never going to get started on a hill. It's hard to start on a hill and have enough momentum to go. But I had so much adrenaline in me. I guess I get on the bike and I ride right up the hill. So uh, 15 seconds later, I'm riding up the hill. 
And then the mind starts to make a whole other chain of thoughts. Because look at you, that was great. You wrote up the notes. You're really terrific. What other 77-year-old women just ride up hills like that? And you fixed it without a tool. That was really wonderful. You should do this every day. You should ride by yourself. And, and, I, and, and the reason I'm telling you that story is I, I was, I, and, and I told it to, I told it, I actually told it to my friend Cliff Saren, with whom I was teaching over the weekend. And you know Cliff, and Cliff is a neuroscientist, and he studies the way people think and mindfulness of thoughts. And he said, you know, the, one of the operative things, I, I said, you know, I could do it because all the time that I was telling myself that demoralizing story, I was fixing the chain. Uh, and he said, you know, it's really also important that I said I had the expertise to know that that's just a story. And Cliff said, you also had the expertise to know how to fix the chain. Which is, and they're really both important, you know, praise God and tie your camel to a post. You know, that, uh, that, that it would be foolhardy, it would be foolhardy to take on something just because you, you're not going to be misled by the story that says, you're, you know, you, you might not be able to do this. But you might not be misled by that story. That might be a valuable story if you really didn't know how to do it. He said it was just a story, but it was also true that you knew how to fix the chain. So I was thinking about that, about that the mind, uh, so I said to Cliff, well, I'll teach that as the mind has a mind of its own. The mind has habitual stories that it just does. It probably tells that story at that point because it got frightened. So it told that story. Who knows why? You know, I didn't decide, now I'm going to complicate my fixing time by thinking demoralizing <laughs> stories. They just happen. Uh, but, then, but then very soon after, I'm so, so feeling so pleased with myself. Look at that. You should go out every day. Da, da. And somewhere in between, I can go out. I should check to bring the apparatus with me, and I should bring my phone. Uh, but the, the, the two things that you can see... These are the thoughts, and these are the other thoughts, and they're just thoughts. And they're the thoughts of the moment, conditioned by the experience of the moment. And then, the, uh, well, maybe this is a good place to say, I say to people these days, when they ask me to do something and it sounds interesting, and I, I say, well, you know, I might do that, but teach somewhere or do something. I say, but I have this new practice called thinking it over. And because my, uh, my, my tendency, uh, one, of my, one of my hindrance energies, I would never have said that my hindrance is lust, because uh, I don't have lust for stuff. But, uh, and I've always said that my principal hindrance is fretfulness of mind, nervousness of mind, and, and needless worry. But I think also I have unrecognized um, lust for experience. If someone says, uh, let's teach a retreat in Kansas City because there's an art museum there that's got a Kuan Yin there. That, has anybody ever seen that Kuan Yin, that art museum? I still have that lust in the back of my mind. That I'll, if, I, if I can find 15 people who want to go to Kansas City for three days, I'll make, a, I'll make a trip, and we'll all go, and we'll get special permission to sit with that Kuan Yin before the museum opens in the morning, because I know someone in Kansas City who could organize it. Let's see the lust. Who wants to go to Kansas City for three days? <laughs> you want to do it? I keep thinking about it. I, might, I could arrange that. Huh? 
What's the name of Nelson? The Nelson, Nelson Gallery. Oh, Have you seen the Kuan Yin? Yeah. Is she great? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> now who wants to go? To <laughs> Okay, keep coming. I'll see about that. I, I still really want to go to Kansas City to see that. So let's. So that was that was to tell you about uh, about keeping the mind large enough to be able to make wise decisions. At that moment, I think the fact that I knew that I actually knew on some level that I could fix the chain. And I could hear the stories, but I was not uh, bewildered by them. So what prevailed was the knowledge that I could get out of there. If I couldn't have unjammed the chain, I could have stopped the traffic, m walked the bike over to the other side of the street, carried it back, the two pushed it back the two kilometers to where I needed to be, and gotten it fixed. So it, it's really about how am I going to keep the mind wide enough to figure out what should I do now. I keep... I keep finding that my mind, as it encounters uh, different spiritual teachings, I read somebody's presentation, and uh, however much I like and admire the whole presentation, I have a little bit of a, my mind gets stuck over the idea that uh, people, uh, that the impetus for spiritual practice would be wanting to know what it's all about. What's the meaning of this? And in all of my life, it's always been uh, much more, what should I do now? Not what's the meaning of this. I, I have a feeling that if a voice boomed out of the sky and said the, you know, the fundamental meaning is it's turtles all the way down or whatever. Do you, do you know that story about the turtles all the way down? It wouldn't help me. It, it was the various stories about what made the way, how was the world made well, it's all on a giant turtle, and where's the turtle? It's on another giant turtle, and what's on that? It's on the giant turtle. It's turtles all the way down. I, I don't want to. I, I want to know what should I do in this bewildering world, where um, I was. I, I, I was watching the morning news. This is oh, this is now two weeks ago, maybe, and a bunch of things happened in two days. I saw in the news that. Um, a trapeze artist in the Cirque du Soleil, a woman with two young children, skilled as anything, fell down and died in Las Vegas in the Cirque du Soleil. And um, when I didn't, uh, uh, I guess I, I didn't read this. I must have heard it, uh, some rendition of what had happened. And it said... Um, the music stopped for 15 seconds, and then it continued, and the show went on. And I thought, ah, you know, but then I thought, well, you know, a woman, a woman died in the middle. 15 seconds to rush out, get her body, take her out. Music stopped for 15 seconds, then the band picked up, and they continued. But all over the world, people are falling out of stuff, or things are falling down. Uh, a tree fell down in Yosemite two weeks ago. You know about that. You, you, a tree fell down in Yosemite. I found out about it. it fell down in Camp Tawanga, which is a camp run by the Jewish Community Center that my children went to when they were growing up and that my grandchild has gone to for years and was there this year as a counselor in training. 
And I got a phone call from my daughter, the mother of that grandson, and uh, who said, you know, I just saw the news bulletin that a tree fell down in Tawanga. And I called right away, and I talked to the camp, and they said none of the campers and none of the counselors in training were anywhere near the tree. But it had said in the news that four or five people were hurt, injured. And one died, and one died. And she was the arts and crafts counselor in that camp. And uh, then the camp needed to decide. There were so many things to think about. Everything is so confusing. The camp needed to think about what to tell the campers. It happened, the tree fell down right next to their dining room. And the whole entire camp, 200 campers, were in the dining room next door to where the tree fell down. Tree fell down over the campfire place, where the following morning, having been the last day of camp, the whole campfire would have been meeting together. Might have fallen down the next morning. The story is so complicated. All the trees in Tawanga got checked by the park service that checks the trees in parking, in camping spaces in January, and all the trees were fine. The limb that fell down was perfectly fine. There was nothing the matter with it. It wasn't rotted on the inside. Why it fell on that moment, on that person, I did, I, there is no why. I think they were just necessary and sufficient conditions in the mechanism of that tree for it to fall down at that time. And the camp was thinking about whether or not they should tell the campers. They evacuated them out of the other side of the dining room at that time. There was a huge boom. And then the evacuation siren went on. And the best that the counselors and counselors in training knew is when that, that sound goes, you take all the campers out the other side of that building and off to some remote field. So maybe it's in case of fire or in case of anything. So no one knew what had happened. They took them to the other end, and they kept everyone there all day and came back for dinner. And then the question is that came over the email to all the parents of children there was uh, what they were going to do in terms of telling or not telling the campers. And uh, they decided in the end with the help of their uh, psychological counselors who were up there, they have two psychologists on duty, not to tell them. They knew that five people went to the hospital and to, um, because the next day was the last day of camp and they were going home. And they said, we're respecting each of you, your rights as parents to tell about death in the way that your family tells about it. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. I had thought they'd tell them right then. Uh, and it might mean they have a special sense of camp time. It might mean that they were frightened by it. It might mean that early on they have a feeling of you never know. But it might also be that you normalize that feeling of you never know, because the truth is that you never know. You never know. When you're looking at the circus, you're not expecting someone to fall down. You'd send your... I, I do know a woman who I... I actually know the woman's father, the woman who was climbing in Ecuador, uh, and a piece of avalanche fell on her and she died. And then you could say, well, uh, climbing is inherently a dangerous activity, climbing up the side of something. But uh, uh, teaching arts and crafts in a summer camp 
is not a dangerous activity. You know, that, uh, uh, and the truth is, you never know. And is there a good time or a not a good time to learn that? And maybe in the context of other people and with trained professional personnel, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you have a thought about that. I don't know. I was thinking about... Oh, I, let me just stay on that a little bit. Um, that uh, Asiana airline flight that um, was coming in for landing. It seems to have been from the last reports that I heard that it was pilot era. Um, and I thought, well, you know, the three people who died were uh, Chinese students coming to study English at Stanford. And think about how much their families were excited about their going. And you don't know. And if they had been sitting in another seat, they wouldn't be. And if that counselor had been inside eating her breakfast and not out. And I, that's what I meant before about, I, I, I joked about it a little bit, that if I, you know, I'll decide what to have for lunch if I make it to lunch. That really, on some level, you probably all know the, the story of the monk, who, the monk and the strawberry. Who doesn't know about the monk and the strawberry? Okay. That's worthwhile. Yeah, because the people have been telling the monk and the strawberry for 2,500 years, or maybe a little less, but um, a, a monk in the, you know, long, long ago um, was walking along serenely, and suddenly a tiger jumped out and menaced him. So he ran, and the tiger ran after him. And he ran, and he came to the edge of a, uh, of a cliff. And he looked over the cliff, and way down below was a riverbed, way down below. So way, way down below, so, <laughs> with rushing water and rocks sticking up, and the tiger coming at him. And so he jumps off the side of the cliff and grabs onto a vine that's hanging there. And he's swinging on the vine and holding the vine and looking down at the water and looking up and the tiger is menacing. And he notices uh, as he's hanging on the, this vine that uh, a mouse comes out of a crack in the, in the wall and starts to gnaw at the vine that he's hanging on. And then he sees uh, also from another crack in the precipice um, a little vine coming out and a strawberry on it that's ripe. And the story is that he picks the strawberry and he eats it. And he said, this strawberry is wonderful. So, you know, as I tell that story year after year after year after year and think about it, the more I get it that that is a fundamental dharma because we are all that monk hanging on that vine you know, but we don't we don't see it as dramatically. But we're all hanging on that vine. That there's this. Here is this. This is menacing. Here, that's menacing. This is. We can't go back there. This is the end. And we don't know when that vine is going to get bitten through. All we know is there's a strawberry here. If there's a strawberry here. 
all we know is, is is this moment and can I be alive in this moment and really know I'm alive and take a breath in this moment. The liveliness is fantastic. It doesn't even have to be a strawberry there. You know, I think that when I remember that, it's like such a shot in the arm about waking up. You never know. I think that the answer to, uh, you know, the, the response to you never know could be panic. You never know, eek, I won't go anyplace, I'll stay home. But calamities happen to people who stay home. Their houses get blown away, airplanes land on them. You know. Besides, you, you, um, there's, a, there's a really a wonderful poem by Billy Collins, which I, alas, I can't do by heart. But he says, um, at any moment, a fragment of, of uh, a, a fragment of a scab of blood might unloose itself from its moorings and lodge itself in your brain. You know that you don't know from one minute to the next what's going to happen, and you could either live in complete alarm, or you could say, you know, this is this is the, the moment I have. Here I am. I am alive in this moment. Um, not be waiting for some other time or lamenting that it's coming too fast or not fast enough or whatever. Here is this moment. And that it's amazing, actually, that we are alive. Sometimes I think, I remember, I remember I, when I, I realized one particular day, it was a couple of years ago now, I, I, I how, how did this work? I was about to leave my house and go to San Francisco. Uh, and someone phoned, and I picked up the phone, and someone needed to discuss something or other. So, somebody that I knew, it doesn't even matter, and I wouldn't, the, the particulars don't matter. But I had, I had in my mind, I'm going to be late, but then I had in my mind, this person really needs to talk. So I talked three or four, five minutes to them and finished talking and hung up and went to San Francisco. And when I got there, all of a sudden the traffic was way backed up on the bridge. And there had been some really dreadful accident on the bridge. So then I thought, like a manufactured story, aha, see, because I did this kind deed, I was then spared being in this accident. And then I immediately realized what a folly that thought is. I was spared that awful accident because I came five minutes after it, that's all. And uh, I also was spared that day every other awful accident in Marin or in California because I was X number of minutes or X numbers of hours away from where that accident happened. And in fact, every day in the whole world, if I come to the end of the day, it's because I missed every accident in the world <laughs> by, that many, by that many miles and that many hours. It's so clear to me that all, all the streets that we cross every day and we don't think about it, all the jaywalking crosses, everything that we do, and then come home unscathed at the end of the day, because many people don't. I think about it, as I was coming over White's Hill this morning, uh, we passed the, the, uh, the fire truck, the rescue truck, coming over the hill, going east. So maybe it was just going home to its firehouse, and maybe it was the West Marin fire truck taking someone to Marin General. But you see that and you think, probably somebody's not having a good day now. And, and it's not me. 
That's not to say, uh, you know, anything other than may they be well. But it's a miracle that when we, when that we are that we are in any moment, and to not rejoice seems like such a, a mistake. You know, here we are with this moment. Robin. Sylvia, the American Sikhs have a little practice on this very um, thing. Yeah. Where when you get in your car, you chant a little prayer, which takes you out of the place that you would otherwise have been and delays you by that extra. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking about that. It also puts your mind into the position of knowing that you're in the car. That uh, uh, years ago, somebody told that story. He had like many, many years ago. Someone said, "Yesterday, I had an accident because I, I was, I was driving, and I was so mad at something that had happened, and I, I bashed into my." Were you here that day? Yeah. And, uh, was it you at the accident? No, no, no. Anyway, somebody had an accident. But the, yeah, somebody around here, and they had an accident because they was they said I was so consumed with how mad I was that I bashed my neighbor's car or somebody, or backed out of the driveway and bashed down. I don't remember the whole circumstance. But what we talked about at, at considerable length is that it's it, um, the same as Robin is saying, you, if you make a prayer is one thing. The other, I, I, we were saying, should put a little sign over your ignition that says, make sure your mind is in gear before the car is in motion. You know, that... Uh, because how often do you arrive at the Golden Gate Bridge and not know how you got there? And, you know, but you are paying attention. And you don't want to ride like, like, like the first day you had your driver's license. You know, it's, it's very tiring like that. But on the other hand, to, to, to not, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. I've discovered now when I'm telling people instructions for meditation, I tell them these are the instructions. Uh, we'll sit for 20 minutes. Make yourself comfortable, relax, and don't fall asleep. That's really that's that's the shortest instruction. Relaxed and and if I if I were to give further instruct ah, if I were to give further instructions on the relax, it would be, do not be caught by or pushed away. Don't don't be uh, lured by, or and or push away anything that comes up. Uh, the line from the line from the mindfulness sutta is having over that the 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 practitioner uh, practices mindfulness having overcome covetousness covetousness and grief for the world having overcome being uh, beguiled by lust or um, Annoyed by something, because both of them push push the mind into a state of confusion. When I woke up this morning, and I had been thinking about all these things to talk about this week, I remembered that there was a song called "Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered." Who here remembers the words? Who, who could make a stab at singing it? There you go. I'm wild again, beguiled again, a whimpering, simpering child again, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I. 
So you can see the age differential in here. But I would like to submit to you and have you do it as a homework that bewitched, bothered, and bewildered is the folklore way of saying greed, hatred, and confusion, which arise when we are uh, not prepared to meet a moment with equanimous clarity. Well, maybe the bewildered part's okay. Huh? The bewildered part seems okay. The bewildered? Well, the whole thing stays bewildering, but I think we get beguiled, don't we? No, not you. <laughs> anyway, think about it, and we'll start from there next week. We'll sit for one second. We'll wish, we'll hope that uh, as we have with pleasure, uh, I feel, I think, I hope you feel, as we have with pleasure shared the Dharma. What was that that Nick said? That was great. said, well, I don't have to find it. The pleasure of having stimulating discussion. It was a delight to talk about all those things. It was a delight this morning to talk about all those things. And to be able to talk about, really, what's the story with the world? Ah, and do it with delight is a great good fortune. I think for me, I think for us, I think that we have this place here. It's a marvelous thing. May we all go, go out from here enlivened and enriched, the opposite from bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, the uh, 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 free from uh, covetousness and, uh, what was the other? Covetousness and grief for the world. Not unbeguiled, unbewitched, unbewildered, so that how we are in the world makes a difference to other people, and that makes a difference to other people, and it makes a difference to the world. May all means everyone, everywhere, be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Ding. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.